coming to you not live, but pre-recorded from the GU Politics office. This is Kelvin, and over here is my co-host, Austin, enjoying her first time in the politics office. How does it feel, Austin? Feels great, Kelvin. I'm very excited to be here and conducting my first interview. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm also glad that we are recording this intro at a much more reasonable time. For context, we recorded our interview at 9 in the morning on a Friday. Yes, it was very early in the yes. morning. This yes. is a much more reasonable hour. Much more reasonable time. You know what else is much more reasonable, Austin? What's more reasonable? Well, going on to Spotify or Apple Podcast or SoundCloud, typing in Fly on the Wall, colon, a GU Politics Podcast, and then you know what to do. Right, Austin? I didn't know what to do. You click subscribe. You click subscribe. It's the only reasonable thing there is the to do. The only reasonable thing. What do you see as soon as you hit subscribe, Austin? You will see our brand new interview with Soshi Inahosa. Soshi Inahosa is a managing director in Bully Pulpit Interactives in D.C., and she is the former senior advisor and communications director for the Democratic National Committee. Yeah, she has a log and story career before that as well. Uh, she served as the spokesperson for Attorney General Eric Holder, and she was senior managing director at the U.S. Department of Labor under Secretary Tom Perez, who she actually mentions in the interview. Uh, she got her start in the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton 08, and it was a really good interview. Yes, it was a great interview. I guess it's time to fly right on in. Isn't that right, Austin? It is right. Let's go. family. Today we have our esteemed guest, Sochi Inohosa. Uh, Sochi, how's it going? Good, thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. And thanks for waking up so early to get with us. It's 9 a.m. right now, right? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Anything for Georgetown. Definitely. Uh, we also have uh, my co-host first time on the podcast, Austin. Can you give the Fly family a big hello? Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, perfect. So let's get right into the questions. Uh, let's go into your background a little bit. You have a political family. You have a dad in politics, obviously, the Democratic chair for uh, Texas. You have a sister who's a state representative. How do you think that might have influenced you and the political career you charted? Well, it definitely influenced me. My family has a commitment to public service, both my mom and my dad very early on. Um, they both work as attorneys, but they did a lot of work um, in legal aid and trying to help people in our community as much as possible. My dad is actually a Georgetown law alum. So he- Hoya Saxon. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, so he um, got his degree here and then moved back home to Brownsville, Texas to contribute back to the community. I think that their lives in public service influenced my sister and I to really want to explore politics and public service at a very early age. And it is fun to still see them in the fight, especially my sister who was someone who was part of the walkout of state legislators in Texas when the voter suppression law was passed. So she walked out, she got on a plane, she came to DC, I got to see her for a month, um, but it has really influenced the work that I do and the person who I, that I am today. 
outside of your family, who would you say your biggest mentors are? You talked a lot about um, empowering females in politics. Is there anyone in particular that inspires you? Absolutely. At a young age, um, I remember my father taking me to an Ann Richards rally. She was governor of Texas, and uh, I was inspired by her. She quickly said, she's like, when's your birthday? It was a very random question just to ask someone. I was like, September 1st. She's like, that's my birthday, too. She's like, us Virgos, we're feisty. And so ever since then, um, I, you know, she has inspired me. She had a wonderful career, obviously, being a woman governor at a time when you didn't really have female governors. Um, she really stood up for working families. And she's someone who is definitely I look up to. And, you know, um, they, I have had mentors throughout my career as well in politics. Um, and one of them is actually, um, former DNC chair and Tom Perez. And so he is actually also a former geopolitics fellow and is someone who has spent his career in civil rights and has really taught me that, you know, you can do a lot of good in federal government. And I worked with him at the department of justice, at the department of labor and at the DNC. And so we've done, we've been in a lot of fights together. Um, and, and I, and I really appreciate everything that he has taught me. Next question is throughout your entire career, obviously you were like the senior comms person for the entire DNC at some point, but you've also done like other political stuff, like on the floor, on the ground in Texas, you're also now in consulting with BPI. Can you tell us about why there's so much movement in your career and what that has enabled you to learn and do. Absolutely. I've done everything from nonprofit work to government to politics to political campaigns to the U.S. Senate and consulting. And so I believe that my entire career in all of those fields have made me a stronger communications consultant um, because I have the experience from working in all types of sectors. I will say that, you know, I tried as you know, as much as I loved working at the Department of Justice and in federal government, um, I always wanted the experience to be on a political campaign. And that is why I did, decided to work Senate races, presidential races, etc. The speed is just very different. The federal government, you can make change and you can help people at scale, which is something I really, really liked. Um, and working in politics, while you can't directly help people at scale, you can't see that direct result. The nice thing about it is that you are electing leaders who can. And it's still very, very important. It's a very fast pace. I would say it's probably like when you're going through finals and you are not sleeping and you are exhausted and probably eating junk food and um, having those bonding moments with your friends. But um, it was something that I learned a lot from and actually working on political campaigns, I've built relationships and friendships that are still with me today and actually mentors. Um, throughout my career, I've had mentors who have really guided me to where I am. And I think that is always important because you shouldn't have to go through the process of your career by yourself. You should always have someone you can lean on to kind of gut check and be like, hey, is this really what I want to do? Where would this take me? What are the pros and cons? And I'm very lucky throughout my time um, to have recruited some really great mentors to lead me along the way. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so communications is obviously a lot of 
cleaning up messes and responding to things on the fly. Is there anything, any crisis that stick out to you in particular? And how did you deal with that? Yeah, absolutely. In some of the jobs that I've had before, you're dealing with crisis after crisis or and and maybe not even so much crisis, but major announcements where you have to that there's a lot of at stake. If you're working at the Department of Justice, you have news that is coming out constantly whether it is news that you want out or not you sometimes you can't control it there are reporters who get tips etc and you have to work with reporters in order to ensure that you're doing everything you can to protect an investigation or a case at the department of justice um one i think big crisis moment for me was at the dnc during the 2020 primary um the first state to vote is Iowa and everyone might remember you might not but the Iowa caucus was is something that every candidate is you know aspires towards they campaign there they go you know and they spend millions of dollars to get out the vote because they want to be they that is the first in the nation that is first in the nation caucus it's the first time that you really understand what the electorate wants Mm -hmm. And we um, worked with the Iowa Democratic Party and the Iowa Democratic Party had major delays in the caucus and I was on the ground and I had to quickly jump into rapid response crisis mode and try to help them get out of that mess as much as possible. It was a really long 10 days. Um, it was a long 10 days and I had a little baby at the time who was home with my mom. And so it was, it was tough, but we got out of it. And at the end of the day, the number one goal for the primary process was to have a fair and transparent primary process so that whoever the nominee was could have the support of the full democratic party. And so we wanted to make sure that everything that we did in Iowa and after met that goal. And because our ultimate goal was to win so we were able to do that and it took some time but we got there yeah from the stories you're telling us so far about your time like on the ground in texas and from your time dealing with crisis like in iowa obviously politics is 24 7. how do you like deal with that and balance it out with your personal life as well you know how do you get that good work-life balance where you can do the stuff that matters while being able to like go to home you know It's really, really hard. I would say for a long time, I never really found that balance. Mm -hmm. I was someone who, before I was a mom and before I had a family, I would work the long hours. I would was willing to stay at the office until 10 p.m. I was willing to work every single weekend um, and not really have boundaries. When you have a family and you start to, you know, as after 2015, when once I got married and had my first kid, it really puts things in perspective. And you still want to do the work because you want to make the change. It's important. You want to make the change for your kid and you want your kid to have a better future. At the same time, you also want to spend time with your kid. (laughs) So you can't do it all. Um, And so I, I was very lucky to have a boss in Tom Perez as DNC chair, who was the former labor secretary. He understood work-life balance. He understood paid family leave. I remember when I was at the DNC, um, we had a three-week paid leave policy. um, And that's unacceptable. We should never have a three-week paid leave policy. And so he implemented a three-month paid leave policy. And I was the second person to really take advantage of that. And it was truly 
paid leave. You know, it was I was able to spend time with my family and um and really take the time that I needed. And he was always very, very flexible and wanted me to do everything I could to put family first. And so I did things like, for example, I blocked off my calendar between 5.30 and 7 p.m. every day where that was my time to pick up my kid from from daycare, take him home, get him fed, put him to sleep. And then afterwards, if I needed to be back online because it was such a demanding job, I would be back online. And everybody knew that. But you have to draw the line and you have to be very honest with people. People want women if we're going to have more women working and in high positions we need to support them Mm -hmm. and i was very very lucky that the dnc allowed me to do that and now bpi and um and my hope is that employers and future employers do that for their employees but it's on us to demand that yeah exactly i I think this is particularly like important advice especially to georgetown students like us because we're still in that point where like we're adults, yeah. but we don't quite understand work-life balance and exactly. we live where we also do our work. That's so tough. It's, yeah, it's really hard to like figure it out. So I, I like the examples you gave of the calendar because we all have GCALs and because <laughs> we're all kind of dominated by it. But yeah. you also like provide a really human way to approach this really human problem. So thank absolutely. you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say in a piece of advice, Tom Perez, the same thing. You know, he was he had a kid or he has three kids. And when he was, um, throughout his career, when he was raising them, he taught every, he coached basketball for every single one. And he did not, he didn't care that if he had a major case the next day, if he needed to travel, whatever happened at work, if the president called, he was there coaching his kids basketball game. It was a priority for him. And so it's, it's about you making time for yourself, right? If you need to, if working out every morning is going to like keep you sane, then block that off on your calendar and make sure that you're getting up and working out every morning, right? If it is like, you know, seeing your family or like maybe having lunch with a friend every week, make that time because your mental health is what really matters. Yeah. Going off of that work-life balance, um, do you think that also applies when the party is facing longer term crisis? Because we think of crisis like Iowa caucus that you said that was around 10 days, but yeah. there can be longer term things. And how does that factor in? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that when I first joined the DNC, it was in a crisis. It was we had lost everything in 2016. Democrats had lost the presidency. Democrats didn't have the House. They didn't have the Senate. They had lost state legislative seats. And there was this this sort of cloud hanging over the Democratic Party about like, what is the Democratic Party's message? Who is in charge of it? Every day you turn on the TV, the headlines, this wasn't even coming from Republicans. This was just coming from the media. The headlines were Dems in disarray. And it was it felt like an ongoing crisis. Like, how are we ever going to dig ourselves out of this? Right. Um, It was a very, very dark time for the Democratic Party. And I remember working nonstop and thinking through, you know, how do we get out of this? And ultimately, what people wanted to see from the Democratic Party, they wanted to see them win. No one wants to be part of a party if they're constantly losing, right? And so we're like, okay, what do we have to do to do that? We need a few wins. We need people to feel motivated again. We need people to feel like, you know, if they're going to go out and volunteer, that it's going to be worth something. And so 
we um, came up with a strategy and really and, and talked to a lot of people and be like, what is it going to take to win the next few races? It was Virginia and New, and New Jersey that were the gubernatorial races in 2017 that were going to be the big races. And so we worked with those campaigns and they're like, what we need is money. We need money to tell our message. We need money to have organizers. And so we fundraised for them. We invested and we ultimately won. We then won in Alabama and, and elected Doug Jones. And I don't know if you remember that, but that was a shock to everybody as well. And so those three wins gave the Democratic Party credibility again. It gave people that motivation to kind of go out and help Democrats again and to vote for Democrats. And so that first year, though, it was like a long crisis. <laughs> it was constantly, you know, people hitting us, people protesting us, people. It was a constant um, it was a constant crisis and it was, but you have to remember that you, if you have a goal, stick to your goal. Even if people are doubting your strategy, stick to your goal. And there is a reason why we had the strategy that we did and it ultimately worked. Yeah. Uh, just building off of uh, Austin's question, I heard about the same division rhetoric in the 2020 primaries. So what work did you do on the ground and like at the DNC to make sure that whatever candidate the Democratic Party chose, it would be one that the whole party could stand behind. Absolutely. So I lived through the 2016 election where there was a lot of distrust for Hillary Clinton within the party. There was a lot of distrust for the process. Um, and I we learned from that. We went back and talked to a lot of people and said, what went wrong in 2016 that you would change in 2020? And a lot of what people said is we... We just want to hear from the candidates. We want a primary process that's fair. We want to debate. We want to see debates. We want to hear from them, right? And so what we did is we formulated a path forward that essentially said, you know, before even knowing who the candidates are going to be, we're going to have 10 debates. And we don't know who the, we don't know who's going to participate in them. And this was like I think we announced this in um I believe it was 2018 or 20. It, sorry, it was, I think it was 2019 that we announced this. And so it was like, well, sorry, no, it was 2018. It, December of 2018, we had announced the, pri the debate process before we knew who was going to get into the race. We also had a process that was that ensured that everybody was following the same rules. We were clear with every candidate. Um, and then we also had decided that, listen, if we ultimately want to win, we're going to come up with a unity program and every candidate needs to agree to fundraising and supporting the party. So having a fundraiser, ensuring that we're raising money to support whoever the nominee is, and then supporting whoever the nominee is. And we want that commitment now. We want that commitment more than a year before the general election. And so we did that. We did those two things and it really helped rebuild trust. And I will say that while there were very, there are so many frustrating times within the primary process, I will say that the DNC really kept its powder dry, was a independent entity in the entire process and made that clear throughout the entire time. And a lot of it has to do with transparency. People just want to see, they just want to ensure that 
you are doing everything possible to win and that you don't necessarily have your thumb on the scale. And so we were extremely transparent through that process, which ended up leading to trust and everyone supporting the nominee. Yeah, it seems like you had a really interesting perspective on what the party as a whole was thinking throughout the 2020 nomination process. Um, Would you say that the DNC's goal was more mobilizing their own base or trying to convince swing voters during that time? So I think it was a little, it was both. You might remember um, talking about another crisis, (laughs) but um, after the 2020 primary, we were in a pandemic and we didn't, no one expected it. It was actually, it wasn't, it was as the 2020 primary was wrapping. Um, We didn't know how long the pandemic would last. People were saying, oh, we'll be better by Memorial Day. Um, It'll only be like a month or two. Labor Day at the most, right? And we didn't know what that meant for voting. And so it was very, very different. What we had to do is we had a plan in place to organize for whoever the nominee was going to be. We had to throw out that plan and be like, how do people vote in a pandemic? And that's not only convincing them that they had to vote for Joe Biden, but that was also trying to figure out how do you physically get people to vote in a pandemic? There were a lot of people that were scared to go out and wait in line and vote. People, there are brown and black voters who vote in person every time. And for the first time, they weren't going to be able to vote in person because of the pandemic, right? So we had to figure out a vote by mail program, an education program, all of those things. And so it was a little bit of both. Well, while we did persuasion and tried to to ensure that everyone knew sort of the differences between Joe Biden and um, Donald Trump, the heavy lift was largely um, reaching out to our base and to those swing voters who we knew were on our side and ensuring that there was an education campaign so that they knew how to vote. Um, we also had to scrap our plans for the convention. I don't know how many times every other week I'd be on the phone and they'd be like, we're going to go virtual. We're not going to go virtual. We're going to, what is this going to mean? So I, we were very concerned because we also felt that this could hurt Dems enthusiasm. If you're in the middle of a pandemic and people are scared to go out and vote and you're not having a big convention where everybody can gather and rally against their nominee, then are people even going to show up? at the ballot box right and so there was a lot of unknown um and i have to give it to the biden campaign because they had to deal they were in the they were in it with us and it was uncharted territory um at some point someone should write a book about how to run a presidential campaign in a pandemic but it was um really it was very challenging in in many ways the pandemic is the ultimate crisis uh, because you get a lot of mixed information and it just keeps on dripping for like three to four years. Yeah. Uh, so I guess my question is one about the future of the DNC. What do you think the DNC could improve from your time uh, there? And what do you think it was really solid on during the time? Absolutely. So during our time, I think what we did well is we built the infrastructure from scratch. So the fundraising infrastructure, the organizing infrastructure, there is now a playbook for whoever is at the DNC now and moving forward on how to win, right? And that is where to raise your money, how much money to raise, 
um, how to set up an organizing infrastructure, how to support state parties, how to run a primary process, how um, to have a convention, all of these things sort of we set up and put in place for whoever's whoever comes in later. I think from here on out, we have to continue to build on it. One of the biggest mistakes that was made during the Obama era was that the DNC wasn't a priority. There were other organizations that were a priority. Um, and this isn't a knock on Obama by any means, um, because I worked for him in his administration and he won two presidential elections, right? Um, and made so much progress. And I think even he realizes that investing in the party infrastructure and having that party infrastructure for future generations is important in order to continue to win. And so we were able to build that and hand it off. I think moving forward, we need to deepen our relationships with voters of color. We need to invest in them more. We continue to see um, how what happens if you don't invest in them. You can't automatically assume that they will turn out for Democrats. You still have to persuade and mobilize them. And um, I want to continue to see that. I want we, you know, this DNC and the last DNC have made significant progress in investing in voters of color. But if we don't continue to do it at high levels, then we're going to lose them to the Republican Party or they're not going to turn out. So I would really like to see the DNC have a program and continue a program that invests in record numbers. Um, how do you think investing in those voters is going to affect the upcoming midterms? Yeah, I think that many of the states are going to be decided on a, obviously a broad electorate. I mean, all of the all of the battleground states that we're talking about that are that where we have tough Senate races and House races um, will be won on the margins. So they'll be won by about a point. Um, and so when you have such close races, you have to invest in your base and turn them out. This is a turnout game. Whoever is going to have them have the majority in the House or the Senate is because they turned out their voters. And that is why I think that we need to invest there. But in states like Nevada, Nevada can't win without Hispanic voters. Catherine Cortez Masto can't win without Hispanic voters. She knows that. Um, and that's why she's working to turn them out. Arizona, you same thing. You cannot win without voters of color. Georgia, it was black voters that put us over the top in Georgia last time around. Um, and so all of these states, it's critical in order to do that. And, I, and then I also don't want to forget women voters. Women voters are the key to the Democratic Party. They're what won Joe Biden the election in 2020. They will be what wins Democrats the midterms this year, um, and especially with Roe v. Wade on the ballot. And so I, um, I do think that, you know, while we've made significant progress, if you look at all of the states that are up this year and all of the Senate races, voters of color and women are the core of the Democratic Party, and without them, Democrats don't win. Let's dig even deeper into that. Uh, can we get... Let's dig even deeper to that comment. 
what's at stake during these midterm elections? And can we get more solid predictions for these midterms? <laughs> well, I think everyone is trying. To, the predictions change every day, I feel like. <laughs> That's just the nature my, of uh, the discourse. I will start with my overall prediction. My overall prediction is likely that, that we will, that Democrats will hold on to the Senate by, um, by a very, very slim majority um, and that we will potentially lose the House. Um, and I think that, that is for a number of reasons. One is in the Senate, you have um, very, very strong candidates with their own sort of agendas and personalities and records. And so I think that many voters um, can see that and will be successful in many of these states. In the House, I think it'll be tough. Uh, well, I don't I think that while I don't think that any one party is going to have some major majority in the House, um, I do think that it is going to I think it'll be difficult for Democrats to maintain control. Now, I hope someone I hope I'm proven wrong and I hope Democrats maintain both um, because there's a lot of work that needs to be done. President Biden actually just gave a speech on this that, you know, we still need to codify Roe v. Wade. The only way to sort of reverse what the Supreme Court did or to ensure that women have rights is for Congress to act. Right. And with a divided House and Senate or with divided Congress, you risk that when that means we're not going to codify Roe v. Wade. Um, marriage equality is another one that is at stake if Democrats don't hold the House and the Senate. Um, a lot of people, this is something that isn't getting enough attention, but protections for dreamers is another thing that will in the next year or two will be front and center, likely in the Supreme Court, um, given that there are cases that are currently in the Fifth Circuit, and we expect dreamers to lose their protections in the next year or two if Congress doesn't act. So those are, many lives are at stake. The health of women, you know, um, our own freedoms and rights, all of those things are at stake if Democrats don't keep the House and the Senate. And I think it is incumbent on Democrats to continue to make that message or, or to just tell people that, because I don't think that when we saw the results of the 2016 election, I don't think we truly understood how the results of the 2016 election would still play out today. And the reason that we have the reversal of Roe v. Wade is because of the results of the 2016 election. Um, and so elections have consequences. And I think that as we figure, as we think through what's at stake, we need to remember that. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about elections having consequences. Thank you so much for your amazing answer, Soshi. I found that you've pretty open in terms of all the interviews I've conducted. So uh, thank you for that candor and transparency. It's definitely on brand considering the answers you've given us. <laughs> uh, so next is our favorite part of the pod, and it will be a surprise to you as it is to all of our guests. It's time for our lightning round. lightning round we ask uh quick questions and hopefully get quick answers are you ready for the lightning i'm round? ready perfect uh austin can you quick us off with the first question what song is stuck in your head right now <laughs> oh my goodness um what song is stuck in my head i would say that 
probably the Thomas the Train theme song because <laughs> as I was leaving the house, my son was having breakfast and singing it over and over and over. So that's just my life these days. Uh, if you look at my Spotify, Kids Bop is my number one uh, because I have three little cousins. Oh, so, that is, okay. So you feel my pain. Yes. I feel <laughs> uh, oh, so what's that other one? Coco Melon. Oh, Coco Melon will stick in your head. Yeah. Uh, so our second question, real light, real casual. Uh, last meal on earth, anything you can have, what would it be? It would probably be homemade pasta with truffles and cream sauce. Very indulgent. <laughs> Very indulgent. If you're saying it's the last meal on earth, you gotta go yeah. indulgent. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> okay, last question, and you can elaborate a bit on this, but you do not have to. When will Texas go blue? 2028. Okay. <laughs> My answer is just six years from whatever year it is. <laughs> yeah, I think it would have to be a presidential election and presidential-like turnout mm -hmm. in order for it to turn blue. And um, I think we are almost there. Although I hope I'm proven wrong because I hope Beto wins. But I think that it needs a few more years of organizing in order. Okay. to see it turn blue nice. yeah so thank you so much Sophie. of course thank uh, you so much. i'd also like to give a big thank you to our fly family and we're done thanks for listening to fly on the wall you can find us on social media by searching at fly on the wall pod inquiries may be sent to our email address fly on the wall at georgetown.edu if you enjoyed our conversation be sure to subscribe to fly on the wall a geopolitics podcast and leave a five-star rating on spotify apple podcasts or soundcloud the Fly's researchers are Kelvin Doe, Robin Huang, and Zan Hock. Our communications team is Andrea Smith and Fiona Gallagher. Our producer is the mighty Max Paley. Original theme music is composed by Aidan Ang and Bella Carlucci. I'm Sam Kehoe, managing director of the pod. Fly on the Wall is brought to you by the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service and is made possible by the McCord School of Public Policy. Thanks for listening and fly with you soon.